Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. With us from the Weekly Standard is Bill Crystal. And Bill, of all the big stories of this week, the astonishing news that America executed a, quote, flawless hostage rescue. Uh, surprisingly, however, it didn't involve actually rescuing any hostages. I wish we had, obviously, because everyone wishes we had. But for the administration to leak the fact that they tried to rescue James Foley and others uh, the day after uh, you know his barbaric uh, killing was, was shown on that videotape, I mean, really, was that a, was that prudent? I mean, didn't wouldn't it be better to keep more people in mystery about exactly what we can do and can't do? And and uh, now they're putting out more details, sort of giving some sense of why we failed. I just think this administration, this happened after the Bin Laden capture, and of course Bob Gates and others were prolific that they were compromising security. And I, I really, the politicization of national security down to, to even this level by this administration is pretty appalling. But there's also something to me disheartening as an American, counting on my government to keep me safe from, you know, terrorists around the world, to see a victory lap <laughs> over, yeah. and we didn't rescue anybody, and one of the people we tried to rescue was eventually decapitated, and when when Chuck, the Secretary of Defense Chuck Hagel said that was asked, was there a problem with the intelligence? No. I, 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 I don't know. I don't know how to process that. Please tell me that they don't mean a single word that they're saying, Bill. Well, they don't mean much of the thing, but think about you. Know, why did they leak it? Now, their excuse, I guess, is it was leaking anyway, but that's ridiculous. And, of course, their leaking it gives it a kind of credibility and details that it wouldn't have otherwise happened. I mean, if, if something leaked out that they had tried a rescue mission, that would be kind of good to keep that a little mysterious. Maybe they, they killed a lot of bad guys. Maybe they didn't. You know, who knows? But maybe there's another one coming. It's leaked this up. They leaked it out because they wanted to show that they were trying. They were on top of it. They weren't just being passive when these hostages were being threatened. Fair enough. I would hope any American administration, any American government wouldn't just be passive and would try. But as you say, when they leak out a failure and then sort of spin it as well, it was really a good failure, you know, and uh, that's just pathetic. And it just makes us look weak. It makes us look weak at the end of the day. If you're sitting there in the Middle East, now you know not only that these uh, barbaric uh, jihadists from ISIS uh, slaughtered James Foley, but that the U.S. failed to rescue him beforehand, and that the Obama administration thinks it's a good thing to tell the world that we failed to rescue him. Which brings up another part of that story that came out this week. Uh, the Department of Justice and the FBI will be investigating the execution of James Foley, so the CSI yellow tape will be going up uh, somewhere in the Middle East soon. And I think the most uh, surprising thing to me was when I saw one of uh, the folks uh, defending the administration of Fox News saying, they're going to go after this the same way they went after Benghazi. Okay, you're saying that like it's a good thing. Yeah, right. We might, 18 months from now, we might find one guy, but we probably won't because the Benghazi people were sitting around in cafes and in Libya, and I don't think these ISIS guys are, and they're on the run. They're on the They're on a roll. I, I look. The bombing seems to have done some good. I think it probably it stopped them short of uh, Erbil, and they have helped uh, Peshmerga troops retake the Mosul Dam, which is good. But the idea that this is a major victory is ridiculous. It's a it's a good setback. It shows that force matters. It tells it puts the lie to those who say, "Oh, there's nothing we can do." We had very minimal bombing efforts, uh, pinpoint strike, pinprick strikes, really, but enough to set them back. This is not a force that is ten you know ten feet tall or that's full of the one of the most. We're not dealing with the the Wehrmacht here, you know. And if we got serious and extended the bombing campaigns and used, I think, a much more robust contingent of special forces and advisors, we could do huge damage to these guys. Now, they're serious. I mean, I was talking to someone today who follows this stuff really carefully from a military point of view, and he said, you've got to be impressed as a military 
matter of military tactics, organization, and so forth, by ISIL. This is not just a bunch of ragtag JV terrorists who kind of got together and are, you know, going around slaughtering people. They're doing that too, but they really, you know, there's carefully planned military operations. They're trying to encircle Aleppo in northern Syria uh, from the north. They're, 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 they let other guys fight Assad and they come in behind them and sort of wipe out the guys who were fighting Assad. So it's a little like the communists used to do in the Spanish Civil War. Uh, you know, they take advantage of better people, really, who are fighting a dictator, and then they come in and, and sort of wipe out the better people and take credit for, for fighting the dictator. So they're really ruthless. They're not without, you know, skill, unfortunately, as a military operation and as a sort of terror group. But again, they're not that strong, and there are a heck of a lot of people in these regions who have seen them up close and load them. And if we went in there seriously and started just going after them, and I don't, I think we could do a huge amount of damage. And it's unbelievable to me that we're being so passive and so restrained and so, uh, you know, long internal debates. Maybe we should have six airstrikes instead of three. Are you kidding? What damage could it do to just go after them in every place we can and do a huge amount of damage? Uh, now all the sophisticates will say, oh, the unintended consequence, something worse could come, about, come up. Really? <laughs> I doubt it. One final point. Um, I was talking with someone just back in the Middle East who said, Jordan, Jordan is very worried about now ISIL, serious infiltration into Jordan by ISIL. And if, you know, that regime is a little precarious anyway, if they start causing serious trouble in Jordan, then you've got a whole other front, a whole other problem with Israel, obviously. Uh, so I, I just, I really hope this president will snap out of it, if I can put it that way, uh, will reverse course, will get serious about defending the fundamental national security and geostrategic interests of the United States, and do his best to polarize this group, which incidentally, just on moral grounds, you'd be doing a huge favor to the world the more than we get rid of. Well, Bill, uh, my sources in the White House tell me that they've got another chuck up the sleeve. They have five more Taliban terrorists they plan to release. And, so yeah, should, and, and by the way, how awful does that decision look today? And that's one of the things that the uh, Obama administration has provided us with. Uh, oftentimes you find yourself arguing the theoretical counter approach, you know, imagine what would happen if you did the opposite to, you know, I know that going into Iraq was bad, but imagine if you didn't. And people can, can't see the counterfactual they can only imagine it well now we're seeing the counterfactual you really are releasing taliban terrorists who would gladly behead people today if they could you pulled your troops out of iraq so that isis could swing swing right in you treated terrorism like a uh, criminal matter for six years and all of a sudden isis went from nowhere to be you know to threatening actual standing nations isn't the counterfactual on display again and again right now bill yeah, absolutely. I mean, you couldn't get a clearer case study across the board, and it's depressing because, unfortunately, this, people are dying as a result of this factual as opposed to a counterfactual, as you say. But And what is, again, equally depressing is, you know, in some of these areas, one says, okay, look, they didn't like what Bush did. They won the election. They're entitled to try another policy. But could they please adjust now to reality, and could they please get serious about the national security interests of this country and, and of our allies in the region and, and everyone else? decent in the world. I mean, we've got two more years of this guy's president, and that is really scary. Uh, the uh, uh, Department of Justice will be working on the uh, case of the execution of, of uh, James Foley, but if you base on the behavior of the Attorney General himself and on the media coverage, the bigger story, the bigger challenge to America is Ferguson. And I'm curious, Bill, where are you after watching the story unfold for a week? What do, what do we think of both the facts on the ground and of the narrative that's being told about the current state of America's treatment of uh, racial minorities? 
it's this is also depressing. I mean, it's you know these situations happen. They've happened, God knows, over the years, over the decades. Uh, a cop shoots uh, someone. It's that uh, it's unclear whether it was justified or not, and people get upset, and there can be disturbances. A lot is all manageable. Then outside types come in and try to make it a big national uh, issue. That's even manageable. It, it gets makes it worse for the administration, and especially for Eric Holder. To, to do what they've done? Does he not understand that he's Attorney General of the United States, that he has an obligation to the whole country to preserve uh, law and order as much as possible, to be fair in terms of his comments about uh, what, what hap- might have happened or might not have happened, but above all, not to go in and make it more emotional, to incite people, to show up as a partisan in the sense of the one side in this argument, and really, I think, frankly, a partisan of the rioters, or the, well, he'll call them the protesters, but the fact is the protests are, are beyond protests, uh, and and uh, with no expression of sympathy for a policeman who do an awfully difficult job, 98% of them do an awfully good job, um, and they, you know, crime is down in this country over the last 20 years. It's one of the achievements of public policy, which she seems to have no interest in. So I, I'm very uh, unhappy by Holder's irresponsible about Holder's irresponsibility. Obama personally, I don't think, has been irresponsible in this case, but he is the president of the United States, and Holder works for him, and he didn't have to let him go to Missouri and turn this into more of a circus than it already was. It was uh, kind of a disturbing moment to see the number one police officer, that theoretically every other police officer works for him, Eric Holder, saying that he understood why black Americans didn't trust the police and that he had had you know, problems himself. I just, if I'm a cop and I'm working the beat in a tough neighborhood and I already have to deal with the poison spread by the opportunists like Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson, et cetera, I, I wonder how I would feel about hearing the guy I work for talking that way. Totally. And, and among conservatives, I mean, you've been a critic of the militarization of the police, and that's a absolutely fair public policy debate to have. I'm probably not quite where you are on it, but I mean, that's, that's a matter of, you know, what equipment they should have and what gear they should be given at a discount by the federal government and, and all these kinds of policy questions. And there are other questions, Fourth Amendment questions, that a lot of conservatives, libertarians have come down to different places on. But to sort of generalize from that to a kind of mindless indictment of the American police force, the police forces across America, as if they're mostly oppressing their fellow Americans or full of people who are looking to sort of do some injustice to blacks or any other minority is really an outrage. And conservatives should not buy into that just to get some nice pats on the head from some liberals in the media by saying, oh, you know, I'm a critic of the cops too. Well, that's very nice. And, you know, we can all criticize a lot of things. But in the in middle of this uh, uh situation. I think conservatives need to remind people that, um, you know, we, we respect the cops and maybe some of the policies should be changed, but this is not the time to sort of be neutral between a bunch of people breaking the law and people who are trying to uphold the law. Uh, my, I wanted to ask you one more question about uh, Ferguson. Uh, if there are any public policy areas where people, right or left, et cetera, could step up. And one that occurs to me, Bill, is the issue of the war on drugs, how to treat criminalization of drugs. John McWhorter had an interesting article this week where he pointed out that the uh, for, for all sorts of historical reasons, the people who are selling the drugs to often to their white customers are young men in the black community. And when you criminalize drugs, you end up making these people, quote, thugs. That is, you put them in a place where they're going to have problems with the police, they're going to be encountering the police, and that that's one of the consequences of the war on drugs approach. Is that an area that people could bring up using Ferguson as a place to make some progress? Are there some other areas we should be talking about? 
I mean, I'm kind of a hardliner on the war on drugs. A lot, I'm like a lot of my conservative and libertarian friends, and my answer to that would be, you know, you're not, uh, won't get any better if drugs are sweeping through these communities. Uh, we'll see what happens in Denver and other places in Colorado where we've got de facto legalization of marijuana. Um, but look, I, I think it's fine. These are genuine po- public policy debates. I'd say conservatives, to their credit, have been interested in criminal justice reform. We published stuff in the Weekly Standard. We've also published stuff critical of some of the conservative reform suggestions on criminal justice. Um, as I say, I think among my friends, among my colleagues here at the Standard, we probably differ on the war on drugs and stuff. But it, actually, I don't like the idea of using Ferguson as a sort of way to bring these things up because the truth is we're now in an incredibly emotional situation there where people can't separate good ideas from bad. And the key there is to restore order, restore justice, have a fair investigation of the policeman, uh, try to get the place, you know, don't go in and stir up the uh, emotions even more there. And then I think it's, you know, maybe at a separate time, we can have some of these policy debates. The Congress isn't going to do anything next week anyway on any of this stuff. So let's, let's publish the articles and let's have the policy debates on criminal justice. But I think here in the short, medium term, uh, let's be Let's rebuke Eric Holder for not understanding what an attorney general of the United States, what his fundamental responsibilities are. Chris Caldwell addresses that a little bit in our cover story this week. And, I, and, he, and he went there to report on Ferguson, but he was struck how unhelpful Holder's contributions have been and how they could have effects elsewhere in the country. I mean, are we, you know, he's sort of legitimizing the notion that when a cop does something problematic or controversial, and God knows, and even to the extent of killing someone, I don't mean to minimize it, but God knows it's going to happen. You know, there's 300 million people in this country. Some cop's going to do something that's on the margin in some city, in some place in this country, and are we going to now have the precedent that every time that happens, it's legitimate to have weeks of riots, and the Attorney General will show up, and so forth. It's really a terrible... Uh, one one last thing to bring up, Bill, and that is late breaking news this week, that Scott Brown is in a virtual tie with uh, incumbent Senator Gene Shaheen in New Hampshire, a state that President Obama carried twice uh, in a race that some people were saying, well, that was just a bridge too far for Republicans. Do you think it is a, is a uh, small indicator of the trajectory of the races across the country this year, particularly for U.S. Senate? Yes. You know, I was just talking with a couple of people who followed this stuff very, very closely. Last night, they were struck also by the um, New Hampshire poll. If you look closely at some of the other races, it seems like they're beginning to move, as some of us have sort of expected they might, in a Republican direction. These Democratic incumbents seem stuck at 45. And if you're, you know, you'll take a look and you see Democratic incumbent 45, Republican challenger 40, votes are 42, 44, and, and some of these different states, and you think, oh, you know, the conventional wisdom is, oh, Democrats ahead, you know. Where's the Republican wave? The truth is, though, if these incumbents are at 45, I don't see any of the undecided breaking to them, or at least a very small percentage. And so I think if it's a 45-42 race, the Democratic incumbent right now, that could well be a 52-48 Republican victory. And I think we could start seeing that pattern and that movement, really, in Iowa, Colorado, New Hampshire, uh, North Carolina, lots of states. And I think states that are now considered, I ran into someone the other day, you know, oh, look, in my state of Virginia, Ed Gillespie is 15, 20 points behind Warner. That's hopeless. Not at all. Warner's at 45, 47. That, that could end up being an extremely close race. So we have a good piece by Andy Ferguson on Jeff Bell's uphill challenge in New Jersey, where he's actually only behind by about 10 points. So I actually think it could be a very big Republican year. They have Republicans have good candidates. Obama looks really weak. The Democrats, I think, will be increasingly tied to Obama by, you know, advertising over the next two months. And it doesn't look like Harry Reid has any theory, any strategy to liberate these Democratic senators or Senate candidates from the charge, which is a f- fair charge. It's a true charge. 
that they are now just uh, rubber stamps for the Obama administration? When have they taken on the Obama administration? So I actually think this could be quite a big year. Bill Crystal, thanks so much for your time for helping us wrap up the week here on the Weekly Standard Podcast. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.